Good morning. Good to see you. Um, it's the 3rd of March. It's exciting, isn't it? We're only 17 days away from the official start of spring. The winter is nearly over, and so is this series. <laughs> Hallelujah. We've had eight weeks, eight weeks of tough talk from our, our sermons. We've had um, eight long weeks of exploring the hard sayings of Jesus. And so, as I opened my Bible at the start of this week and sat down to pray and think about this Sunday, I was, I was faced with a choice, a choice to be, to be kind or, or a choice to be cruel. I thought about how hard we've all worked over these past two months. You know, how we've wrestled together with these, these difficult verses, how we've reflected on our, our own Christian witness in the light of Jesus' challenging words, how we've asked ourselves, are we measuring up? How are we doing in our walk with Jesus? Are we truly living the life that Jesus has called us to or not? And, and I just thought to myself, Dan, it's the last week of the series. You know, they deserve a break. You deserve a break. Let's just pick a nice, easy passage. Something warming, you know, something, something nice, something friendly. And then I thought, nah, where's the fun in that? So if you've got your Bibles, could you open to Matthew chapter 18, please? Matthew chapter 18. And brace yourselves for one last week of tough talk. We're going to finish as we started. So I'm going to read to you um, from the beginning, from verse 1. And this is what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world, because these things that cause people to stumble... Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. And if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Whew. Classic Jesus. <laughs> Child care and dismemberment all in one sitting. Fantastic. We're in for a treat. So um, at the start of the week, um, Bob asked me what we were going to be speaking on this week um, so he can prepare the worship, you know, think about the theme and all the rest of it. He's very um, professional like that. And I rather just unhelpfully sent him the verses that I've just read to you and I wasn't 100% sure where I was going to go with it at that point. And, and this was his reply. Thanks, Dan. 
I'll see if I can find a song that goes with cutting off hands and gouging our eyes. God bless Bob. <laughs> I think he's done really well this morning, hasn't he? It's been a great worship time. So this is tough, isn't it? This is tough. Um, let's rewind a little bit then before we dive in and ask what's the, what's the context? What's actually happening in these verses? Why is this conversation taking place? If we skip back a couple of chapters to chapter 16, the end of chapter 16, we see that Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, that he needs to go to Jerusalem. They're currently in a place called um, Caesarea Philippi, which was about 105 miles north of Jerusalem, so they've got a bit of a a bit of a journey ahead of them in the next couple of chapters. And then he says that when they get to Jerusalem, they're not going to have time to see the sights or go on the rides because he's going to suffer at the hands of the chief priests, the teachers and the elders, and that ultimately he's going to be put to death. But he says they shouldn't worry too much because after three days he'll come back to life and that this is all going to be a part of Jesus bringing about his kingdom on earth. And this was a little bit confusing for the disciples. They weren't sure about this. We, we know that because Jesus had to repeat himself um, several times. For example, we read almost the same thing in chapter 17, verse 22. At this point, they've arrived in, in Galilee, only 70 miles north, so they're on their way um, down. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Now, the problem with the disciples was that they had um, a condition. It was a medical condition, um, which you may or may not have heard of, um, called selective hearing. Um, my kids, unfortunately, suffer with this. It affects them um, greatly. It's very sad. For example, when I asked them to, to stop um, having fun and, and go and tidy their bedroom, their, their little ears just shut down. They can't um, hear what I'm saying. And the disciples had the same problem, because they, they liked being a part of Jesus' entourage, they um, were having fun, they liked when he did all the miracles and all that kind of stuff, and they couldn't wait to be a part of this new kingdom he was building, they were really, really excited about that, but when it came to his death and his resurrection, they sort of went one in, out, one in ear and out of the other, and they were very much focused on the wrong thing, which is why at the start of chapter 18, we, ask them following, ask them, we see them asking Jesus the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus, we know you like us. We know your, fr your friends, but who's your favorite? Who do you like best? Who's going to be the, the most important in this new kingdom of yours? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be him? Not him, surely. And it was actually, it was a bit of a contentious issue for the disciples. Um, it was a question that came up on more than one occasion, who's the best? And in fact, um, shortly after this, the disciples even go as far as to get their mum involved. How sad is that? Matthew 2020 20, 20 reads that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. So with them, you can imagine it. Come on, boys, we're going to sort this out once and for all grabbing them by the arms and marching them over. And Jesus says, yeah, what, what do you want? And she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. How cheeky is that? I imagine she's the sort of mother that can play into the coach when they didn't get picked for the first for the football team as well. 
But if you think that's bad, a little bit later on, the next time we see the disciples having this argument is during the Last Supper. Jesus' last meal on earth before his crucifixion, he's just finished telling them and, and showing them all the things that he's going to suffer. He, he takes the bread and he, and he breaks it and he said, this is my body given for you. And he, and he takes the cup and he said, this is a, a sign of the new covenant my, made in my blood which will be poured out for you. And then it says in verse 24 of Luke 22, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. Selective hearing indeed. And the problem was that they were only really interested in self-promotion. They were only looking to expand their own platform to make sure that they had the best seats in the house, that their interests were met ahead of the rest of the group. And it was, it was an issue for these 12 lads from Galilee 2,000 years ago. But I think in many ways it's still an issue for us today. You know, we care about what others think of us. We, we measure ourselves against those around us and we covet the things they have or the position they hold or sometimes even the attention that they get from others. And very often this ends up affecting the way that we behave. We might even try bringing others down in order to pull ourselves up looking for ways to point out the flaws in those we spot around us, to, to hold up pe other people's mis misfortune or their poor decisions in order to make ourselves look better. And I want to talk a bit more about that later on. But the problem for those of us that follow Jesus is that's the exact opposite of the life that Jesus has called us to. And so the disciples, they have this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Actually, if you read Mark's telling of this story in Mark 9, um, we find this is something that they've been arguing about all morning on the journey to Capernaum. And it's Jesus that says, what were you arguing about? And they, they go very quiet at that point. But it's Jesus' response that I think is fascinating. Jesus would often... Um, tell a story or he would use a scripture or sometimes he'd be very direct in what he said to them but on this occasion he spots a child someone um, very young like a like a toddler in the Greek it's, it's a young or an immature child and he and he calls them over and the child comes Jesus was very good with children and he and he says stand here Timmy there's a a good boy and then he just points at Timmy the disciples look at each other and say, is he all right? Did, did he mishear us? Did he, he think we said who's the smallest in the kingdom or, or, or the cutest? And then Jesus says to them, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What, never? The disciples, they, they thought this was a done deal. They were just trying to figure out who was going to have the best parking spot. But now Jesus tells them that unless they become like Timmy, they won't even get in. This is one of the many occasions where I wish the Bible was a comic, so I could see the reaction on the disciples' faces. What does Jesus mean? What does he mean when he says that they must become like little children? What is it that he wants them to learn from this small child? Surely he doesn't want them to become childish. You know, later on, 
The Apostle Paul talks of the importance of maturing in our faith, doesn't he? Of growing up, he writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, when I was a, a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. So he's not talking about being childish. But of course, there's a difference between being childish and being childlike in our attitudes and our mindset. Some have suggested that this passage is talking about having a childlike faith. You know, that that simple trust that isn't complicated with worry or doubt, that just accepts Jesus for who he said he is. You know, children will pretty much believe anything that you tell them. For years I've had my um, daughter, Amelie, convinced that I can swallow a sword and pull it out of my belly button. It's because she saw me do it once. Not with the real sword, mind. It was one from the pop-up pirate set that was um, about that big. But she's convinced nonetheless. I've then had to convince her not to try and do the same thing. So we have to be careful what we model to our children. But children generally, they respond in faith. If I tell my son Eli to jump off a climbing frame into my arms, he'll do it without hesitation. Sometimes before I'm even ready. But <laughs> trusting that I will catch him. Steve touched on this idea a little bit last week when he spoke about how as adults we don't always find it easy to trust in God's provision or trust in God's care for us, but children do. Generally speaking, most children in the UK, they wake up in a home where they know they will be fed and clothed and kept warm. They don't doubt it. So perhaps this has to do with childlike faith. Others have have suggested that this is, is to do with childlike wonder. You know, children have that that constant sense of awe, don't they, about the world around them. They they notice little things. They become amazed at the things that we tell them. My my son's new favourite phrase is, does it actually? Does it actually? It's the way he responds to everything we tell him. Eli, did you know that the, the Sahara Desert covers a third of Africa? Does it actually? Eli, did you know it takes three days to get to the moon in a rocket? Does it actually? Eli, did you know that tidying a room helps with your mental well-being? He didn't respond to that one. because Selective hearing thing. But you know, he's fascinated with the world around him. He calls going on walks, going for an adventure. I love that. His imagination just brings the world around him to life. And you know, I think we need to retain our sense of wonder when it comes to God as well. After all, we worship a God that we can't see and a God that we can't touch. As we open our our Bible, are we really excited about what we might find there? Do we have that sense of wonder and and, and awe about what we might read and discover? Or are we just sort of going through the motions and ticking off an imaginary box on our spiritual to-do list? I've done my reading for the day. I'll get on with everything else now. So maybe this is to do with childlike wonder Others have suggested it's to do with children's vitality, you know, their ability to to live in the moment, their sort of childlike presence. You know, my kids seem to have um, boundless energy, seem to have a lust um, for life, even when they've been up late the night before, they're still up at the crack of dawn, ready um, to face the day, much to my dismay, because um, often I want to stay in bed on a Saturday. Um, Their new favourite trick... Uh, is to just let the, the cat upstairs because they know that once we've had our faces walked on and our ears licked a few times, one of us is going to get up at least to take the cat back down and then we have to make them breakfast. So it's a very effective alarm clock. 
But you know, children, unless we teach them to, they don't worry about tomorrow, they just live each day as it comes. The other day, Emily said to me, Daddy, I love being a child. I love being a child because all I have to do is eat and play games. And I thought, wow, I am not giving you enough chores to do around the house. <laughs> but what's interesting about that statement is she, she recognised there was a time coming when our life will be more complex than it is now. Other suggestions for how we could become more childlike include having childlike joy. Sometimes we lose that sense of joy, don't we? Um, childlike imagination, contentment, trust, a, a child's ability to, to learn, a child's ability to listen, unless they're my children. And while all this is, is good, and while all this I think is helpful and, and can be backed up by Scripture, I don't think that that is why Jesus placed the child among them. Actually, I think it's much simpler than that. I think the reason Jesus uses a child as a, as a visual parable for the disciples is because children weren't important. They didn't matter. Now, that's not to say that they weren't important or didn't matter to Jesus. If you read on into chapter 19, you can see how Jesus responds to children. Parents bring their children to him so he can pray for them. And it's the disciples that say, no, no, don't bother Jesus. You know, send them away. And Jesus says, no, no, let the... Let the children come to me. But in Jewish society, much like the Victorian era, children were to be seen and not heard. They were the subject to the authority of their, their parents or elders. They were not to be taken seriously except as a responsibility. Children were to be looked after, not to be looked up to. And I think that's Jesus' point. Here in this passage, we find the disciples having spent the best part of the morning arguing about who was the most important, the most significant, who was Jesus' second in command. And Jesus says, actually, guys, this is what you're aiming for. This child who holds no power, no influence, no authority, no special significance whatsoever. You see, what I think Jesus is doing here is using this child to show the disciples what humility looks like. Because children, and especially small children, they're naturally humble. They, I mean, they literally look up to everyone, right? The reason I think Jesus is talking about humility here is twofold. Firstly, this is how Jesus always responds to the disciples when they argue about who is the greatest. He gives them an example of humility. Here he uses a child... When James and John's mum got involved, he responded by reminding them that his purpose on earth was to give his life as a ransom for many, to suffer and die at the hands of men. And he says, are you prepared to do the same? And their mum was quiet after that. When the disciples are arguing during the Last Supper, John tells us that Jesus takes off his outer garment, tied a towel around his waist and got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. The role of a servant, how astounding is that? Because, let's be honest, legitimately, every time the disciples ask who is the greatest, Jesus could have responded by going, duh! I mean, literal son of God. But he never does. He never does. Instead, he points out that when it comes to his kingdom and when it comes to his followers, that's not the way it's going to work. He says insane things like, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. 
Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. He says, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And he says, even when it comes to me, I didn't come to be, ser- uh, to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for many. The second reason I think that Jesus is talking about humility here um, is because he says he is. It says in verse 4, Therefore whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There we are. She just read ahead. Could have saved ourselves some time. What's interesting, I think, about this passage is he says, unless we get this humility thing right, unless we become humble, we'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's a couple of things with this. Firstly, I think this has to do with our understanding of our position uh, before God. You see, when we are consumed with our own self-importance, we begin to value ourselves above others. We start to believe that we are, in many ways, better than everyone else. And while that might help us to get ahead in the world, in some senses, it actually moves us further away from God. There's a story that Jesus told in Luke 18 about two men, a religious leader and a tax collector. And he says that the religious leader stood before God and he prayed, God, I I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a, a tenth of all I get. Oh, how wonderful. Thank you for making me so special, so perfect. Essentially, look how well I'm doing ahead of everybody else. But it says the tax collector stood at a distance and he wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his chest. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You see, he understood where he stood before God. And Jesus said, because of that, he went home justified. Not the the religious leader who essentially thought that he was perfect. And the trouble is, when we become self-righteous, we believe that it's our accomplishments and our achievements and our brilliance that will save us. But they won't. It's only God's... Love and it's only God's mercy demonstrated in Jesus dying on the cross in our place to save us that will save us. And we can only accept that with a humble heart, with an awareness that we need it. So when it comes to God, we we need to understand that we're all on a level playing field. It doesn't matter if you've attended church every Sunday for 65 years and never said boo to a goose, or whether this is your first Sunday here and you've spent your life tormenting geese. We're all on a level playing field. What God's interested in is our attitude of heart. Do we believe that we're worthy of God's praise or do we know that we're sinful and need his grace? Because only one of those roads leads to salvation. That's the first thing. The second thing though, you see I don't think Jesus is only talking about here what happens to us after we die. He's not just talking about heaven that we go to when we leave this earth, I think he's also talking about the life that he is calling us to now, here, on this earth. Because I think that we can create heaven or we can create hell by our actions and our attitudes towards others. 
And I think a lack of humility puts us outside of God's kingdom because it devalues those around us. And I think this is why Jesus talks the way he does in this next section. Um, Just a heads up, this is where the sermon moves from a PG to an R rating, um, so you've been warned. (coughs) Covering the ears of the small child with his hands, Jesus said, If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me, those who believe in me, so he's no longer talking just about the children, but all that believe in him. If anyone causes those who believe in me to stumble, it'd be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So here's a picture of an actual millstone from Capernaum, where Jesus was teaching at the time. It's quite big, definitely heavy. It's possible that Jesus was near one of these as he was teaching, and much like the child, he points it out to the disciples. And he says, guys, it's better for you to have that hung around your neck than to go and jump in the ocean than to cause one of my followers to stumble. And he doesn't really calm down from there, does he? He says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. Strong words. Really strong words from Jesus. Why does he go all Game of Thrones on us? You see, I think that Jesus is aware in this moment that despite him trying to teach the disciples the importance of humility, their ambition and their pride has the potential to move them outside of God's grace and at the same time cause others to stumble as well. You know, there's almost an inevitability to it. I think that's why he says in verse 7, such things must come. It's the way of the world. But I also think it's why he spends the rest of this chapter, this ongoing conversation he's having with them, talking about how to deal with those who hurt you, how to love them, how to forgive them, how to restore those relationships, the sort of stuff we've talked about earlier on this series. But he's right. It was true for the disciples, then it's true for us today. How many people do we know that have walked away from the church and maybe even from their faith because of something that someone said or something that someone has done to them? Whether it was intended or not, I bet we can all think of at least one, if not more. And so, knowing this, Jesus uses shock tactics. He talks about long walks off short piers and elective surgery because he needs his followers to take this seriously. To stop their bickering and their infighting and to listen, to to snap out of their self-centered mindset and realize that their power is in their hands to either create the kingdom of heaven among them or bring about hell on earth. Which, of course, he mentions a few times. As I've said um, in an earlier sermon in this series, when Jesus speaks of hell, Um, It's a Greek word, um, Gehenna, which refers to the Valley of Hinnom. It's south of Jerusalem and it was used as a a sort of dumping ground, a a rubbish tip, a place to get rid of waste. Um, But what's interestingly is the the history of that place, because it had previously been used as a place where children were sacrificed to the false god, Molech. 
And just as he's talking about causing little ones to stumble, he brings to mind the most evil of places where children were given away to be burned. I told you it was R-rated. But I think Jesus uses this harsh language, this horrible imagery, to get us to wake up to the power that is in our hands. He wants us to be honest enough with ourselves about the potential that we have to cause harm to each other through our own pride and our own selfish ambition. And then to do something about it. To make a change in favour of the other. I don't think for a minute that he really wants us to drown ourselves or remove our eyes so you can relax. But I do think he wants us to see the potential that we have to cause harm. He uses this kind of language on another occasion, actually earlier um, in Matthew, when he's talking about looking at someone lustfully, because it's better to gouge out your eye and throw it away. But at the same time, he points out that the issue is not that we've noticed someone, but that we've made a decision in our heart to commit adultery. You see, that person that you've noticed has become a tool to be used to satisfy your sexual needs and nothing more. And so the idea is not that we maim ourselves to a point where we can no longer see or touch the people around us, but that we become more aware of the value that other people have in the eyes of God. And I think that's why a lack of humility is actually so toxic. Because it devalues those around us. It makes us the centre of our universe and it leads us to a place where we start to treat other people as though they were beneath us. And we see it come into the surface with things like um, gossip. You know, when we hear something juicy about someone and we want to tell as many people as we can, oh, you never guess what I heard about Robert. But really what we're doing in that, that, that moment is that we're devaluing that person in the eyes of others. We're making ourselves look better in the light of their mistakes or misfortune and essentially saying that we care so little about them that we don't see their dignity or their reputation as something worth protecting. But God does. As I've mentioned already in this series, God cares passionately about the way that we treat each other. It's very, very high on his priority list. And so I think the way in which we should respond to these words of Jesus this morning is to make sure that we view everyone around us as a small child would. And that means that we look up to them. We don't look down upon them. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Let's not stand on top of people, crushing them beneath, but let's find ways to build each other up in love. I think that's what Jesus had in mind in this passage. I wonder if the band would come and join me this morning as I bring this to a close. I want us to sing a song together. The final tough talk. How are we going to respond to this message today? What are we going to do about it. I think probably uh, we need to begin with some heart stuff, don't we? That's normally the best place to start, looking at ourselves, reflecting on our own journey at this time. Are any of us guilty of thinking of ourselves better than those around us? Very easily done. Do we look for ways to tear others down rather than build them up? 
I don't want to get all preachy, because this is, this is an attitude I've noticed in my own life from time to time. A little bit of jealousy creeps in, a little bit of frustration at my own situation, and suddenly I'm thinking about how I can bring somebody else down. It's very easy to do. Are we seeking to serve others, or are we seeking to serve ourselves? I believe that maybe the first step for us this morning is to remind ourselves that when it comes to God, the family of God, that we are all in the same boat. You know, the Apostle Paul says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We don't come this morning praying to God, Thank you that you have not made me like them, but we come saying, God, I am empty-handed. Without your grace this morning, I'm nothing. And then I think when we have that right view of ourselves, when we understand that, again, despite our inherent unworthiness, God loves us, that Jesus died in our place, then we can start to love others in the same way, laying down our lives for their benefit. I wonder if you'd stand with me. We're going to sing this song together as a way of responding this morning. Majesty, here I am, humbled by your majesty, covered by your grace so free. Your grace has found me just as I am, empty-handed, but alive in your hands.